Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When Dermot Gallagher was a boy growing up in Dublin, he dreamed of playing at Lansdowne Road. In 2002, he achieved that dream. Well, sort of. By then, Dermot was one of the Premier League's top referees and took charge of the Republic of Ireland in a game against Russia, just a stone's throw from where he grew up. Just one of the incredible stories from 22 years and over 1,200 games as an elite referee, taking charge of cup finals and some of the greatest players ever. Dermot. Thanks for joining us today and telling us your, your story. Um, how did that come about? So you were a well-known figure in football at that stage, the top of your game in the Premier League. I guess people know you're originally Irish, originally from Ireland, but you're working in England and in representing England and you get to referee Ireland, which sounds like a dream come true given your background. It was, Tommy. It was, it was incredible because um, even when I was professional referees, come home six, eight times a season, see my family, see my friends... And a lot of the times I trained with the Irish referees, you know, trained up at Ulster with them, um, taught them different things that I'd learned at the Cascade Down. And a very, very dear friend of mine, Paddy Daly, was the liaison officer for the referees for the FAI. And he made a suggestion that they invite me to do this friendly against Russia. And I was driving to Blackburn about three weeks before the match and my phone rung and Joe Guest at the FAI said to me, you know, the, F the FAI wanted to referee this game. And I nearly crashed my car. <laughs> I said, are you serious? He said, uh, yeah, yeah. He said, uh, they've got permission. He said, uh, you become the first man in the world to referee his own country and the city he was born in and, you know, enjoy it. Just tell us how much of a dream that was for you and that whole sense that, like, you had, I mean, you, you grew up, like, literally around the corner from, mm -hmm. from Lansdowne Road as it was then. Yeah, I was born in Hollis Street and lived in, lived in Ringsend, you know, when I was a boy. Um, when we went to England, you know, I was a young boy, first of all, when I went to England and... We used to come home every holiday. We'd be back and I'd spend half of it in Dean's Grange, half of it in Carrick Mines with my grandparents. And we used to see all the matches. My dad used to take me all the matches. And then um, I'd come back to Ireland when I was 13 because my mum and dad parted. And I'd spend time with my granny to look after me because I was still underage. And during that time, my dad took me to loads and loads of games at Lansdowne Road. And just before I was about to go to England for the, for the last time, if you like, to start work, you know, last time as a schoolboy to start work. Um, he took me to see Ireland play Brazil at Lansdowne Road. And it was the famous 3-4 game, you know, it was incredible. It was just incredible. And we were walking back to my granny's house in Dean's Grange and I remember saying to my dad, I'm going to play there one day. <laughs> and my dad looked at me and said, yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, then when that happens, I say, when I got that phone call to say, it's going to referee it out. It was incredible. It was incredible. I, rem I remember stood for the national anthems and my dad was dead then, unfortunately. And they played the Irish national anthem, and I just looked at the heaven and I remember thinking, I did it, Dad. <laughs> Brilliant. 
Um, the Russians didn't, didn't mind, did they? No, they, they, were, they were fine. They were fine. <laughs> and what, what would that, because the likes of Roy would have been playing that game, Robbie Keane, Shea yeah. Given, and were they looking at you going, you know, what, what are you doing this game for? It was, it was amazing, really, because I, I got another Ireland game out of it. You know, it just shows that it was a bit like Dublin buses, wasn't it? And they come in a row. And um, I was warming up and Niall Quinn come across and, you know, wished me well and whatever and said, um, will you come and do my testimony in September? Uh, in May, sorry. And I said, yeah, who are you playing? He said, uh, Sunderland are playing Ireland. I was like, wow, it just gets better Perfect. and better. Yeah, it was just before they went to the World Cup. So, so I refereed the warm-up game for the World Cup in 2002 and then Niall played this game for, obviously raised a lot of money for the hospitals. Um, and I went to Sunderland to referee that game when uh, it was Ireland's last game before they went to Saipan. And, and it all went downhill from there, as they say. Um, your, your accent became a bit of a topic of conversation. You did an interview on Irish radio a while back and people were, I think people may be surprised from hearing you on Sky that you did have Irish uh, and, and, and Irish roots, but, but, it, but it's obviously really strong and something that you've, you've sort of dual personality over the years. Is that fair to say? I think you just get sucked in, don't you? You know that um, I've lived in England now for 48 years. Um, and in that time, you're going to change, you know, you're going to adapt. That's, that's how life is. You know, don't, don't forget, I was a 16-year-old boy when, you know, I finished school, started work in England, 1973. Um, all them years on, you know, you've, you know, I've got different friends in England, I've got different friends in Ireland. So I, come back, I was back last week, you know, for a few days. Um, stopped at my cousin's and go down to Lansdowne Road or you go down to the city and people go, you can't tell you've left. But when we see on Sky, we mm. think, well, was he really born here? You know, it, I think you just you just blend in. Mm. And you still go to the Ireland matches, away trips. You've been spotted in yeah. far from parts of the world. Well, I just think I'm football mad. And I, I can't believe how lucky I've been, honestly. I really do mean it. I'm very, very grateful for what football's given me. I can't believe, you know, the place I've been. And it's my country, my friends, my relatives go to the matches. Um, I meet up with them. We, we go three or four days, you know, to watch the games. It's, it's just brilliant. You know, we've been to the tournaments. Went, I even went to Japan. You know, we're three weeks in Japan. Uh, was in France for the Euros. It's just wonderful. It's just wonderful seeing all Irish friends and families at these ton, kind of festivals. Let's talk about that uh, that career that gave you such a, a wonderful life and so many great experiences then. Uh, but, but before we do, whenever there's a big controversy involving a referee and they're getting loads of stick and they get something wrong, people go, why would anyone, why on earth... <laughs> Would anyone want to do that? Why would anyone want to be a referee? Sell it to me. What's, what, what drew you to it? Well, if you'd asked me when I started, I wouldn't know. Uh, you ask me now, and I, I look back and I say, well, look at me now. You know, look how fit and healthy I am. Look how happy I am. That's what refereeing gave me. I mean, I, I'm 65 years old now. Um, you know, I still run three, four days a week. Um, I can still referee corporate games. I can still referee local parks games. You know, I've got a regime that was built in because of my referee. And so it's given me health, it's given me happiness. I went to 53 different countries. I've got friends all around the world. But more importantly, you know, I had the best seat in the house at some of the top games in the world. You know, I refereed the South American equivalent to the Champions League final in Brazil. You know, I've got the best seat. I didn't pay for it. You know, it's incredible. You know, I, I refereed in the Euro 96. I went to South Africa, met Mandela. You know, I got all that from football through um, uh, what was um, a terrible illness I had that I look back now, I'm still a devout Catholic, I look back and think, God bless me there. You know, 
I went to work one day, four days before my 21st birthday. I didn't feel well, which was very unusual because I'm very, very fit and healthy. Um, eight days later, you know, my dad said to me, I thought we we're going to lose you. Um, you know, he, he never used the word coma. He always said, you know, you've been asleep. So you've been asleep all that time. I thought you were going to die. And I was four days after my 21st birthday then. I'd had glandular fever. I'd gone into a real bad state. Over those eight days, I lost two and a half stone in weight. You know, I was, I, I was just skin and bones. Um, my hair fell out. Uh, terrible problem with my left eye. You know, the vision went a lot. And I was 13 months off work. It took me 13 months to recover physically from that. It was incredible. And you have to remember that was 1978. And in 1978, when you're 13 months at home trying to recoup, you haven't got Sky TV, you haven't got mobile phones, you haven't got iPads, you haven't got all what people have got now. All I'd got was three channels on the TV and I'd got books to read. And it gave me a lot of time to think about things. And I, I made some big, big decisions. You know, I made, made up my mind that I'd been given a second chance and I wasn't going to waste any time. I wasn't going to badmouth anybody. And I was going to do everything to make myself and my friends happy. And I was going to not jump off mountains. I'm not into that, but I was going to live for today and tomorrow. What's gone is gone. Today's the most important day of my life. And when tomorrow comes, that will be the most important. And that's, that's the decisions I made. And I went back to work um, all them months later. And again, God works in mysterious ways. There was a guy there, Dick Bartley. He just finished as a linesman on the football league. There was no Premier League then. And he said, why don't you start refereeing? Because I couldn't play football. Mm. I was too tiny. I was too weak. And I went, no, oh, I can't, can't referee. He said, but you know football inside out. You're football mad. I've never known anybody as mad about football as you. He said, just start refereeing. He said, I'll help you. And I had this vision that it was going to take me a couple of years to get better. I, I knew I wasn't going to get better overnight. And I thought, well, if I referee, it'll keep me involved. In two years' time, I'll be strong enough to play again and then I'll go back to playing. And in two years, I was on the semi-professional leagues and I went to a game and the referee told me that he was a linesman on the football league and I thought, blimey, one more step and I'll be into pro football. I was only 23 years old. There was no referees at 23 then. And I thought, I'm going to kick on. And I did. And 27 well, why years did you think you were good at it? What was it about you that, that suited refereeing? Uh, well, I think three things, really. I think... For my own, you know, I'm football mad, so I knew, I knew how to play football. I understood the game, so I think that was a major thing that helped me. Um, I think I'm quiet and easy going, and I I get on well with people. So I wasn't an actor, so I went into it um, being my own person rather than somebody who's gone into it and tried to adapt to a role that he couldn't. Because bear in mind how young I was, and I was refereeing people old enough to be my father. I, I remember one of my early games. Uh, a man did a tackle and I called him over and before I could say it, he said, how old are you? And I was quite taken back. I said, 21. He said, I've got a son your age. I was like, wow, what do I say to this guy? Because it's like telling my dad off. I often wonder, does refereeing suit certain personality types? You know, was, was there anything that, that sort of made, that made, it, made it work for you in terms of, or is there a certain personality type that, that suits it? I learned that it did suit me, Tommy, and I, and I learned it suited me because I'm I'm very regimental in my life. You know, um, you know they they say I'm mildly autistic, and by that, everything's in place for me. And refereeing gave me a refereeing gave me a structure, you know, train and match days, all the things with it. So it it did it worked for me. 
um, when I went to training camp, Alan Wiley was my roommate and he used to laugh. You know, it'd be like Wednesday night's kit, Thursday morning, and it was all laid out in piles. Yeah, even you go in the bathroom, I'm left-handed and everything was on the left-hand side, everything was in order. And I said, it was brilliant being a roommate, wasn't you? He said, because he said, the room was spotless. He said, everything was organized, he said. And then as I got older and I, I'd finished ref and pro, um, I was up the, um, what my sister-in-law has downs. So I was up the school because I have a trust fund up there. And one of the guys was talking to me and he said, he realized, he said, you've got all the traits of autism. He said, and I said, no, no, I've, you know, I'm 55 years old or whatever. And he said, you have, he said, what it is. He said, you don't realize it. He said, it's, it's like an OCD thing. And so you use everything to your advantage, don't Indeed. you? Indeed. The, the thing, just to come back to when I asked you about why would anybody want to be a ref that makes sense to, to me is being up and close with such with so many great players when you love the game and you get to see them, you've got the best seat in the house. So who's the greatest player that you ever saw up close that you were standing right beside watching them in action and thinking, wow, I'm privileged here? Zinedine Zidane. Good answer. Refereed, um, why was that? Champions League semi-final and um, Del Piero got the ball on the left wing. Hit this ball across. It, as it went past my nose, it sounded like a golf ball after tee. And it was going towards Zidane. I thought, good luck with that. <laughs> and he just put his foot up about waist height, cushioned this ball, knocked it off to Antonio Conte, and I've just gone, wow. Champions <laughs> yeah. League semi-final, and he does that. It's just incredible. And do you have to be conscious that I'm supposed to be here doing a job? I'm not. Uh, I'm not in the front row eating popcorn here. But <laughs> you must get carried away watching some of the some players at that level, in particular. I mean, you would have been the great Premier League era of the, the Zolas and you know Beckham and all sorts of great yeah. players. And but the thing is, um, Thierry Henry, etc. When when you go there, you know you you're thinking of all that. Yeah, you're thinking I'm going to be competing with these guys. And I think that's the word. You are competing because you go out and when you're stood in a tunnel, any Ground, whether it be in the Premier League, the Football League, the Champions League, it's a challenge, isn't it? It's a massive challenge that you know you're a you're just tasked with this challenge of seeing fair play, seeing a good game, protecting the players, applying the laws of the games correctly. It's just a brilliant challenge, and I think the interesting thing about refereeing, I'm not sure that you actually enjoy it as you should during the game. You do enjoy it but you don't realise you're enjoying it. It's only after the match you have this brilliant sense of satisfaction mm. of having competed in a marvellous occasion. So you're working your way up the, up the ranks and, and, and you get into the Football League and you have to make the decision at a certain point to go full-time because obviously it, it was a part-time thing then, you had a job. Mm. So talk to us about that. Like When did you kind of say, actually, I'm this, I can make a living out of this? Well, I couldn't. I mean, that, that's the interesting thing. I was probably the first professional referee in the world, I would think, because um, in 1990, I got my first overseas trip. I was working as a newspaper printer on nights, and a guy, he was great to me, Mick Kennard. And to show you what a sacrifice it was, that was back in 1990. I was earning £20,000 a year, which was a lot of money then, honestly, as a newspaper printer. And I turned that away. And the Football League fee, the no Premier League then, was £100 a match. I did 21 games. So my income plummeted from £20,000 to 2100 So it was a massive gamble. And I went through from 1990, we didn't get paid professionally. We got match fees, but you only got match fees if you were refing, not if you were no holiday money, no sick pay, no injury pay. 
it was 2001 before they decided to make people professional. So I was 11 years ahead. Who was the toughest player, the real handful that you ever refereed? Thomas Repka. I, I think I probably refereed him at the wrong time in his, in his career. It, it, um, he openly said that he came to England, his uh, family were back in Italy, and he was going through a bad time. I think he got sent off in his first game um, in England anyhow. And then when he West came, Ham, was it? Yeah, West Ham. He came to West Ham, and then on Boxing Day 2002, um, I sent him off. You know, he just completely lost his head. Um, I sent him off, and then the next time I saw him was in the February at Leeds. And he was very, very tough, difficult. And ironically, I was fourth official on his last game and he come and knocked on the door. As Steve Bennett was the referee. Steve Bennett invited him in and just said, can I have a quick word with you? And he, he come and apologised. He said, look, he said, I was going through a bad time. He said, I, I know I'll give you a hard time. He said, I know when you sent me off, I shouldn't have spoke to you like I do. And for me to send somebody off for something somebody said to me, it has to be very, very serious. Um, but he really, he just lost sight of reality at that on that day and but as i say 18 months later he come in he said sorry you know so at least he realized did you ever feel intimidated by a manager and i'm thinking of at the time alex ferguson was renowned for you know his his own verbals the famous hairdryer treatment in, in the dressing room and obviously dished it out um to, to officials uh, as well like how did you get on with fergie i i got on well with uh, most people you have to remember is that um in the heat of battle, all these people are on their own club side. So if they feel that they've been hard done by, they feel that you know you've you've done something they don't agree. Because it's perception, isn't it? You might not have got it wrong, but in their eyes, you have. I think you know the nicest person in the world can suddenly say something untoward, you know. And you you have to be careful and mindful of the situation and what's happened. But interesting thing about Fergie, I refereed um, a game at Leeds United on. Uh, it's the only game ever played on Christmas Eve in the Premier League, Leeds United and Manchester United. And Leeds beat Manchester United. Massive rivalry. For somebody to referee Leeds United against Manchester mm. United at Ellen Road, it's massive, honestly. It, it's, it is a massive <laughs> game. I can't emphasize that enough. And uh, Fergie wasn't that. They, they lost. They lost and he wasn't happy. And, you know, he's, he's upset because I give Leeds a penalty. And, you know, he's, he's not happy at all. And then a couple of weeks later into the new year, we got called to a referees managers meeting. And Sorry, we, is he and is he letting you know he's not happy? Like he's yeah, he's, he's going up the tunnel at full time. He's you know, oh, you know, you've done this. It's never a penalty. You know, all, all the usual thing. You know, he's not happy, but in his own way, he hasn't gone over over the line. But what he's doing, he's made sure that I know that he's not very happy. Um, so, as I say, a few weeks into the new year, we get called to a meeting by the Premier League between the managers and the referees, and it's a meeting just to try and iron things out and. You know, this is how we see things. This is how they... And find some meeting ground, which is what I think life's all about. And uh, Ken Redden was our boss at the time and the referees have been told this, that and the other. And then he said, look, when the managers come in, he said, I don't want referees one side, managers the other. I want you to mix and match. So the managers come in and it was like, when the music stops, everyone sits down. And I sat down and Fergus was on my left. I went, oh, blonde, that's all I need, isn't it? And he went, what's up with you? I went, what do you mean, what's up with me? I said, two weeks ago, I said, you give me an earache in the tunnel. He said, match day, he said. Match day is about Manchester United. Yeah. Today, it's fine, he said. <laughs> You're one of the best referees in the country. I'm not going to have a go at you. I'm like, wow. Yeah, and that, that says it all, doesn't it? Exactly, yeah. and that's how it was. 
while they were on at Manchester United. What about Mr. Keane? Because people remember in, in that 90s era, famous incident with him, sort of veins bulging, going at, uh, it was Andy Durso. Andy Durso yeah. So did you ever get uh, rough treatment with him or did the Irishness uh, Yeah, I think that, that helped a bit. And in fact, it, it helped... Um, it helped me massively in the game uh, Manchester United against uh, Everton in 2001. It's about October 2001, and um, Roy went down the line, and the ball goes out of play. The linesman flagged the throw in, and as it, it was the 89th minute, Manchester United win three one against Everton. The game's done and dusted, really. And as Roy wheeled away, linesman flagged, calls me over, and this is exactly what he said to me. I'm not joking. He said, this is one of them big, big decisions. <laughs> and I thought, if he's injured, could he not have lasted one more minute, you know? Because <laughs> it wasn't like the World Cup where we were anticipating 10 minutes at stoppage time. We yeah. only played one or two then. I said, go on. He said, I want you to send Roy Keane off. I said, what for? He said, he swore at me. And uh, David Unsworth was playing for Everton time. He said, Durham. Just get on with the game. I mean, that's an Everton player. <laughs> Just get on with the game. He said, look, this come on. He said, there's only yeah. a minute to go. We want to go home. He said, no, I want you to send him off. I said, you serious? He said, well, leave it up to you. That's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. So I'm stood there in front of 75,000 people, stood by the linesman. Everybody's wondering what's going on. So I'm like, oh. so I walked back to Roy Keane and I remember saying, do you think we'll get China or Iran in the playoffs? <laughs> Honestly. And he went, I hope it's around. He said, we don't want to go to China. I said, so do I. I said, we'll beat them, won't we? I said, good luck. Walked away. Job done. <laughs> <laughs> and he accepted it. <laughs> but it's just, that's what it's about. Little, little things to get yeah. yourself out of a very difficult situation. Um, uh, well, I want you to tell me what you think makes a good referee in general. And you're obviously a long career looking, looking back at them now. So fitness, you mentioned. You, I guess, you, do you have to be as fit as, as those... 22-year-old wingers running up down the field or, you know, what level do you have to get to? You do have to be fit. There's no doubt about that, Tommy. It's, it's, it's all right being able to run, you know, 3,600 metres in 12 minutes or whatever. But the most important thing is you've got to be able to make a decision. So uh, as I said to people, you know, don't base the first criteria on fitness because you've never seen a racehorse referee a football match. Yeah. You know, you've, you've, got to, you've got to be able to recognise a foul. You've got to... because. There's two things, isn't there? You can see a foul or you can recognise it. And by that, you can see a foul and you give a free kick. But you've got to recognise the gravity of that foul. Is it a foul full stop? Is it a foul yellow card? Is it a foul of talking? Is it a foul of red card? And I think that's that's the key ingredient is recognising the different things, you know, recognising what is right and what's wrong. And I think the other, all the top referees have two things for me. They create a little bit of time. They... The easiest thing in the world is to blow your whistle. You blow your whistle, you've closed your options. Mm. You just give yourself a little bit of relaxing time and think. And the other thing is if you blow your whistle, you've still got time. You don't have to rush into anything because when the game's stopped, you've got time to think. And I think that's what the top guys do. Do the, the really good ones have a really ice-cool yeah. temperament for yeah. those moments? Yeah. You have to have this, that's a great phrase, ice-cool temperament. I think the other thing you have to have is Graham Pohl had it in bucket loads. You have to have this ability to park something. That once you made a decision and the game restarts, you can't go back. And, you know, a player go, oh, damn it, damn it, that was a penalty, that was a penalty. And Graham Paul, and I can do it. I, I, I could do it like Paulie. It's like, Tommy, if I made a mistake, I'm sorry, but we can't get that back. 
the most important decision I've got is the next one. Mm. And I think Graham Powell had that in bucket loads. Is no matter what happened, that was then. It was all about refereeing. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You talk about you know, keeping your head in those big decisions. But did you ever, um, I, I think of all the, the, the bits and pieces you have to do, yellow cards, red cards, your book, your, your, your coin, you know, all these things you have to have, have with you and, and all that. Did you ever go to a situation where you've kind of gone, oh, I don't have my yellow card here or don't, you know, I, I, like things like that? I, <laughs> I tell you a great story. It's true as well. I refereed in the um, Cup Winners' Cup years ago, PSG against uh, Ferenc Varos. And I was at the Park de Prince. Uh, Ronaldinho was captain of PSG. Mike Dean was my fourth official because he said, I've never seen anybody do what you did. And all my stuff, show you how I'm like, all my stuff's laid out. Book. I had a book like that with the yellow card. Yellow card in the right, red card yeah. in the red, in the left. That's, it. That's how regimental I was. My coin was laid out, my whistle, whatever, my spare whistle. It was all laid out. And I'm packing my stuff away into my pockets. Knock on the door. And... Uh, the delegate come in and he said, have a good game. Oh, I always remember. And I went, sir, I'll try my best. And he went, it's no good trying your best. You've got to do your best. And then the buzzer went. <laughs> so I've snatched my stuff up, gets out, and there we are, you know, they, they come up by the, uh, in front of the tunnel. The, the players come up and I reach in my pocket and I'm like, no coin. And I turned to Ronald and I said, ah, new UA for initiative. <laughs> you kick off. Nobody said it word Dean. I went. <laughs> <laughs> Rock, paper, scissors with Ronaldinho. <laughs> Just accepted it. Yeah. I was thinking on my feet. Went back. My coin was still on the thing. Yeah. <laughs> I was a delegate come in. But quick thinking. Oh, got me. Um, was, was there ever a decision where you got, oh my God, I got that totally wrong? Definitely. I'm sure there were a few. <laughs> definitely. 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 But again, well, I was refereeing. Um, I can't, it was about 2001. It was West Brom and Villa, which is a big, big game, you know, big rivals. And uh, it was 44 minutes gone. Mark Delaney comes in towards the penalty area. And as he's coming in, he's leaning forward. And I remember thinking, he's going to hit the ground. So he's going to hit the ground. This isn't going to be a penalty. It's the only time in my life I've ever done this. I made my decision before anything happened. Mm. And he did hit the ground. What I, what I didn't see is Phil Gilchrist took him off at the knee. I've given it the biggest goal kick. Yeah. Dion Dublin was stood next to me. Great guy, Dion Dublin. And he just went, you didn't fancy that, pal? And that's what Dion's like. And I went, you think it was a penalty? Oh, 100% to him. He said, 100%. He said, but you're the boss. 
So I go on to 44 minutes, going off at half time, and Gareth Barry's giving me dog's abuse, honestly. De Dion tells this all the time. Gareth Barry's gone mad about it. Manager for um, West Brom was Gary Megs. He didn't help my cause because as I got to the touchline, he said, Cheers, Durham, we owe you one. <laughs> like that, that really sent him off. So he comes out for the second half. And every time I give a decision against Villa, Gareth Barry, that's your fault. That's your fault. It's all your fault. And about seven minutes to go, I give Villa a penalty. And Dion said, you saved my bacon, Durham. Mm. Dion took it and missed. <laughs> I turned to Gareth Barry and said, I suppose that's my fault as well, is it? <laughs> Dion went, he forgot all about me then. Yeah. Um, one of the iconic games of the 1990s was probably one of you, one of one of your career highlights, or, or certainly in your in your uh, role of honour anyway, of big games you did, was the 1996 FA Cup final. Now, if you're a football mad person growing up in the 70s and 80s, uh, particularly then, that is the big day in the football calendar, and you get that ultimate honour. And not only that, but it's kind of one of the most famous games, not for the quality of the game, but because it was Man United at their, their peak, winning the double, second double, Cantona scoring, obviously, and then Liverpool, the Spice Boys with the white suits as well all, all, all that day. So what was that, that day like for you? Can you remember the, the feeling of getting that game? We went to the hotel on the Friday night and met up with my colleagues. And, that, and I'm trying to get through to them what a big, big occasion this is. I, I mean, I, I grew up, when I grew up in Dublin, used to watch the cup final from about 12 o'clock all the build-up and everything. It was, it was just a magical day. And when I went to England, the same. It was just such a special day. You'd just see everything, you know, quiz ball and teams on the coaches mm. and all the interviews and whatever. It, it was, it was just a magical moment. And then suddenly I turn up at Wembley about one o'clock on the Saturday. And it dawned on me then. That's when it really dawned on me, when I've got out the car to walk up the steps to the chain rooms. I thought, blimey, this is it. You know, this is it. And uh, Paul Durkin was my fourth official, one of the nicest guys you could ever meet, great referee. And we walked out on the pitch, and he's like, we never thought we'd be here, did we, boy? And I went, no, no, I didn't. Honestly, Dirks. And that was a, it was a terrible match for, from the viewer <laughs> point of view, but is that, is that a good thing from your point of view because nobody remembers the big mistake you, you made or well, anything like that? I, I always, I, I don't remember much about the match because it, it was poor, but a couple of things I remember is... Um, the, uh, Wembley then was had the track round it, the sand round it. So went to, and the goal, uh, change room was at the bottom, behind the bottom goal. And we had to walk across the duck boards, across the sand, back to the um, dressing rooms. And as I was going across the duck boards, Gary Pallister shouted to me, he said, Derm, is this the worst game you've ever reffed? <laughs> and I said, being me, I said, what, me or the game? He said, both. <laughs> <laughs> and that summed it up. And the other thing I remember, I... There was about a minute to go, and it was Phil Bad booted the ball out. I don't know why he just lashed this ball out, went for a corner. It was only about a minute to go. And as it come across, um, David James dropped the ball. He, he bumped into Mark Wright, didn't he? And the ball was still about shoulder height for Kante. He was on his own, and he volleyed it. I mean, it was, if you look at it, it it's an amazing piece of athleticism. Yeah. And it's rocked in towards the goal, and Rob Jones is on the line. And in life, you, you don't have time to go bang, 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 bang. What, you, you picture something in your head. And Rob Jones moved across with his arm. And it just went to him and went, oh, no. He's going to handle the ball. I've got to send him off. It'd be a penalty. And if Man U win the penalty on it, the, the story would be, 
penalty, 10 men last minute. And Rob Jones pulled his arm away and it went in the net. And years later, I went to Kuala Lumpur with Rob Jones on the, and on the plane, I said, do you remember that incident? He said, yeah, yeah. I said, what made you pull your arm away? He said, I thought they wouldn't give me my medal. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, wow. I was, Mark Wright said, it's true, Derm. <laughs> I was brilliant. Unbelievable. Did you, did, you, did you get a medal? The referee gets a medal. Yeah, I did, yeah. 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 You... Apparently in the old days, I mean, you, you get a fee and a medal. In the old days, they tell me you could choose a fee or a medal. And I actually said to Colin down, I said, how many chose the fee? He said, none, Derm. <laughs> oh, so I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, do you remember seeing the white suits before the game to yeah, ask the, the, the yeah. critical question? <laughs> yeah. That everybody remembers about that game. Yeah, I walked across. I saw Stan. I saw Stan Collymo. I said, they don't suit you. He said, that's, that's great. Because he's a great guy, Stan. He's, he's still got a suit. Yeah. <laughs> still hanging up there. One part with it. So how did you come to do the Copa Libertadores final, which is the South American Champions League final, travel all the way to Brazil and do that? Well, I, I did the game in um, Qatar. I mean, we, we did the final and we went back to the hotel afterwards and we were having a big big meal in, in the Sheraton and um, the guy there, Doris Belichick, was from FIFA and she just said, what do you do for a living? And I told her the story I told you earlier and she went, wow, really? I went, yeah. She said, well, how do you survive? So I told her, as I told you. Never thought no more of it. She said, right, if I get a game, I know I can get some at short notice, whatever. So I was at home, um, it would have been April, late April, um, 96, phone goes and it's Doris Valachek at FIFA. She said, would you be available Thursday to Tuesday next week? We well, you know it's gonna be a game somewhere. I said, yeah, yeah, brilliant, where do you want me to go? She said, I want you to go and do the uh, South American Champions League final between Palmeiras and Sao Paulo. I'm like, are you serious? She said, yeah, do you not fancy it? I said, wow, I just can't believe it. Um, you referred to Qatar there, and, and that's what you're referring to there is the Under-20 World Cup uh, in 95, mm. and you got the final of that game. But it's it's a tournament that's uh, a memory that, uh, I mean, I think bittersweet might be the word, might, that might not be even to describe the sort of emotional time you were having in your, in your own life then. Tell us a little bit about that. You mean about my dad? Yeah. Yeah, my dad, um, my dad brought us up. We, um, from when I was 13, I had a younger brother who's now dead, and I had another brother who was three at the time. And my dad had to bring us three boys up, you know. Um, he, he chose to keep all three of us boys. He was going to, as he said in his words, he was going to school us, he was going to clothe us, he was going to feed us, he was going to educate us. And he was my hero because I couldn't believe that anybody would sacrifice like he did for three boys. And that's not exaggeration. He really did give. He just wanted us three boys to have everything they could possibly have in the world that he didn't have. And we're all three different as well. We're all uh, massively different. But um, about two, two weeks before the tournament, uh, my dad was taken into hospital. And it was very unusual. My dad had been in England 30 years, never been to a doctor. So for my dad to go to hospital, was obviously something serious. And I went to see him on Thursday night and um, I don't like hospitals. And my brother told me the next day, my brother Colin, who was, he was alive at the time, he, he did a brilliant impression of my dad. He said, he said, he said, oh, we went in to see dad. He said, you never guess who came in yesterday. He said, your big brother come in. He said, he took off his hat. He said, he talked to the water jug for 30 minutes, never looked me once in the eye, got up and went. Because mm. <laughs> I couldn't 
Barrett. But as I got up to go, I always remember my dad said to me, Dermot, you're a great son. He said, go and have a great tournament in Qatar. He said, I hope it goes well for you. And I walked, that was the last thing he ever said to me. And I walked out of the hospital on the Thursday afternoon. And I thought, well, I'm picking him up on Monday. The doctor said he's coming out on Monday. I'll pick him up. So why did you say that? And then on the Saturday morning, Lizzie rings me at seven o'clock. I was away at football training camp. I said, I've got some really, really bad news for you. And I went, car's insured, don't worry. I thought she'd crashed the car, you see. So the car's insured, you know, as long as you're all right. She said, no, no, your dad's died. I was like, are you serious? She said, I'm really sorry, Dom. Your dad died last night. Oh, wow. And then we had the worst possible thing happen is that if it happened here, you know, my dad, I'm still practicing Catholic, so my dad would have been buried within two, maximum three days. And whilst that wouldn't make me feel good, it would bring closure. You understand what I mean by that? In England, it took 13 days. While he was above the ground, so to speak, it was torture for me. And I really, really struggled. I'm like, it was bad on flus of my dad, but I just wanted to bury him. And eventually, on the tourist day, we managed to get the funeral arranged. So buries my dad on the tourist day. And the Friday, I flew to Qatar. And that was 1995. The only way to contact anybody in England then was by fax because the time difference and whatever. I've gone out to Qatar, the other side of the world as it was then because, you know, travel wasn't as easy as it is now. No mobile phone, no iPad, no Sky TV, over there, it's just their channels. I was with 15 strangers for a month. And all I could do to take my mind off what had happened was throw myself into the football. And I did. I literally trained every morning, quarter to seven till eight o'clock um, because it was so hot. I couldn't train during the day. Then I'd try and keep myself busy. And I did five matches there. At the time. You know, I, did, I did the opening match, strange enough. I did the opening match. I did a quarterfinal and I did the final and I did two fourth officials. But on my days off, to keep myself busy. I went to matches, I went to watch matches. And that's all I could do is to fill my time up to take it away. So I look back and I think, how did I manage to do that? How did I manage to do that? But but I did and it was just, it was extraordinary, wasn't it? To think that the human being can get through anything they want to if they just apply themselves. And that was almost like a, a tribute to your, to your father, I guess, who'd supported oh, you for so long to, to oh, get to referee a big match like that. Oh, would I? I just, do you know what? I really mean this from the bottom of my heart. I know you can't look back, and I, I get that. But if I could have one wish in life, you know, if, if the good Lord said to me, whatever happens, you can have one wish, but think carefully, I wouldn't have to. All I'd wish, Tommy, I swear, is my dad suddenly to appear in a chair there and me to tell him, how much I cared for him, how much I thanked him, and how brilliant it was to me and my two brothers. And I, I swear I would sell my house tomorrow and give it to charity if that could happen. It, he meant that much to me. I've got all this way without asking you what you think of VAR. <laughs> so what do you think of VAR? Would you have liked VAR? Do you think VAR is a joke? Do you think we should get rid of it like lots of people say, or are you a fan? Well, the genie's out of the bottle, so I can tell you it's not going to go away, is it? It's, it's a one-way street we go. Um, it all depends whether your glass is half full or half empty. Mm. Um, mine's half full. And why I say that is I think VAR in itself is a brilliant idea. 
I really do. I think the whole concept is brilliant. I just think at the moment we're in a transition period where referees have gone into it new. It's a totally different new thing for them. So they're, they're trying. We've got, as I said earlier, we've got referees refereeing on Saturday, VAR on Sunday. That will change. We will have dedicated VARs. But if you look back and you think, all right, you go, that should have been a penalty. That should have been a red card. We have to remember without VAR, that still wouldn't have been a penalty. That still wouldn't have been a red card. You flip that, as I say, my glass half full. What about all the decisions where they've gone, that should have been a penalty? And they've gone, like, oh, wow, so you give a penalty. And there's a lot of decisions being corrected. I think the other thing with VAR, there's, um, offside was a big, big problem for us because they had this almost zero tolerance. Mm. And it was, um, it, it was, we had the famous one with John Lundstrom when they said if he wore size six boots instead of size eight, he'd have been onside. Mm. Well, you know, was it really made for that? Now they've got a little bit of a tolerance margin. They've got this little bit of breathing space. And ironically, people have um, almost embraced it. And when I do ref watch on a Monday morning, very, very rarely now do we do an offside decision because people have accepted it. So I think that's a major step forward. Mm. Um, going forward, I think, you know, you touched on it before, Tommy, about will it be more communication? I think it will. But I think what they're careful of is that they want all the ducks in a row. They don't want to go from A to Z straight away and make a mistake. They want to go from A to B, B to C, and so it's like. So it is moving forward. But it's like everything in life. It still won't bring utopia. Do you think referees sh should be mic'd up or do you think there would be benefits to having them mic'd up like we see in rugby or in the NFL, for example? I think it'll happen. I think um, with the VAR, we had uh, the goal line technology come in. People have now started to embrace that and accept it. With VAR, people start because there was a lot of sceptics about VAR before. Now it's starting to move on. It's got better. It's got quicker. It's got slicker. We're also seeing ex-referees now move into that dedicated role so they're not refereeing on Saturday and VAR on Sunday. They've started to transition, and that will only happen over time. So we've seen this movement, and I think bit by bit it will move. We've, we've got a situation now where the broadcasters can hear what the VAR says to the referee. They can't hear the reverse. And... Um, you know, there's a new boss coming in at the Premier League. Howard Webb, who had a very open relationship in the MLS, uh, very much communication. So maybe he want to drive that forward, but he's also hamstrung that FIFA has to say, yes, it's allowable. Can I just ask you about the whole issue of, of abuse of referees? It's a big issue in this country uh, lately, in a number of sports, in, in soccer, grassroots soccer and, and GAA as well. Uh, and I know it's an issue in the UK with, with, with grassroots football uh, also. Um, and, and, and people have kind of pointed at, at what happens at, a, at a, an elite level where managers are abusing referees and that is sort of tolerated. You got it, the, the whole area of social media thrown in as well. Um, like how, what, what needs to happen to deal with that so that, so that I mean, is it a cultural change that, that to, to, to create a more tolerant, uh, less abusive atmosphere around referees to make life easier for referees at all levels? Definitely. I, I think now that each of the associations in different countries are realising this and they're starting to, there's campaigns, we had respect the referee in England, there's different things. Uh, in my village, they cordon off the pitch. It's, it's cordoned off so there's a, a runaway to allow the officials to think. Um, in the academies now in England, some of the academies are saying if a parent uh, has a go at a younger referee, that parent will be removed 
from the complex for the rest of the season. Well, if you think your boy's playing for one of the teams in September and you're removed for the end of the season, that's massive punishment. So it's a deterrent. And I think that's the word, isn't it? It's all about deterrent. We don't want to punish people. We want to stop them doing it. Um, but there has been a culture change in life, hasn't there? I mean, when I grew up, when I started refereeing, there was no social media. I mean, I still don't do social media. I'm not on any of the platforms. Um, so it just doesn't interest me out of my age group, if you like. But, you know, I would say to these referees, you know, if you're worried about that, if you're worried about being bashed up on any of these platforms, why are you actually going on them? Because if you're going on them to read nice things about yourself, mm. you're not going to find them. You're not going to find them. Exactly. Do you think that there's a role, because there was a story or a bit of controversy recently uh, and Jurgen Klopp was uh, criticised for abusing the referee and the fourth officials over over decisions. He subsequently, subsequently apologised and said, yeah, I was in the raw, I shouldn't do that. But the, 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 the point that people made was that people at his level were setting an example to people at that level. So what do you think? Do you think it's incumbent and do you think there should be some of those deterrents on, on managers and coach, coaches, which there obviously are, but do you think it's incumbent on them to behave themselves and set an example in that way? Well, I think it's the same for everybody, isn't it? Whether it be Jurgen Klopp or whether it be, you know, the Banbury Irish under-12s manager who I refereed last week. Um, you know, they, they've all got a responsibility, but the trouble is that in that moment, he was so upset or he didn't get a foul on Salah that he's, he's flown at the assistant and, you know, he's, he said himself he shouldn't have done it. He's come out and apologised. He, he did it in the heat of the moment. Again, that doesn't make it right. But he was fined and he subsequently got a one-match ban. So he was punished. But as I said earlier, we don't want people punished. We want it not to happen. Yeah. And, you know, if the deterrent is, you know, you're going to be fined heavy because you're a Liverpool manager and you're going to get a one-match ban and he doesn't want to be set up in the, in the gallery. He wants to be there coaching his players. That's the deterrent at the moment. And I think that, that's, what, that's what needs being. It, it, but it, he did come out, didn't he? He did come out and said he was out of order. Yeah. He got sucked into the moment. And I think, whilst that doesn't make it right, what it did do, it, it gave a little bit of insight into how he was thinking. He was so wrapped up. He thought it should have been, I mean, I thought it should have been a foul. Mm. But he thought it should have been a foul and it was an important decision for him. It was a very tight game. As I say, it doesn't make it right. But that's how fine a line we tread you know, as I said, the higher you go, the stakes are so high. You know, he probably saw that if Salah got away or got a foul, could have possibly been 3-1 instead of 2-1 and it's a whole, whole totally different game. Indeed, and I think they will never invent the technology that stopped us arguing about referees. But, but Dermot, you have almost made me think that being, being a referee is something that, that sounds like a great job. So what I want you to do finally is... Just all the all the great matches and experiences you've had. If you could be right back in the middle now, in one game of all those twelve hundred games that uh, that you took charge of, where would you be? Quarter to eight, February two thousand and two, Lansdowne Road when the national anthem was playing. That was the moment. I remember looking up to heaven, saying, "Dad, I did it." Yeah. As nineteen seventy three, I told him I'd get there. It took me a long time, but I got there. <laughs> Well, Dermot, I'm off to get my whistle now after all that. You've, <laughs> you've painted a great picture. Thanks for telling us your story today. Pleasure. Hold up. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.